Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Congresswoman Karen Bass of California returns, this time as the new chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, and on the eve of President Trump's declaration of a national emergency on our southern border. We talk all about that, how her constituents went from using her as a political therapist to a band of volunteers who helped flip seven congressional seats, and how AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, reminds Bass of her younger self. Hear it all right now. Congresswoman Karen Bass, welcome back to Cape Up. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, Actually, no, let me do this again. Chairwoman of the Congressional (laughs) Black Caucus, Congresswoman Karen Bass, welcome back to Cape Up. Thank you. So, I mean, you've been in the role now for uh, for a few weeks, and it's a huge leadership responsibility. But is it is it even bigger than you could have anticipated? Um, no, I think it is what I anticipated because I've been fortunate to have been on the executive committee of the CBC for a while, so I've seen a few chairs. But it is it is wonderful so far. Fifty-five members of the Black Caucus, five full committee chairs, 20 subcommittee chairs. So the Black Caucus is the largest it's ever been and the most powerful it's ever been. So it's very exciting. You know, I... I apologize for forgetting that, um, and I and I knew this. You were on the executive com- executive committee of the CBC because you were part of the leadership team that went to the White House to meet with President Trump. And there's that great picture of you and the former chair uh, uh, Cedric, Cedric Richmond, Cedric Richmond, mm-hmm. uh, and one other person sitting across from the president. And what were you talking about then with the president? <laughs> like your agenda that you had for the president. Well. Uh, Chairman Richmond put together this booklet. You remember during the campaign, he said, what do you have to lose, African-Americans? Why not give me a try? So Cedric Richmond brilliantly pulled together a 130-page document that was entitled, This is What We Have to Lose. And the beginning of the uh, booklet, it explained a little bit about black history, since we know he doesn't know much. He just discovered Frederick (laughs) Frederick Douglass died. And uh, it was a, a policy document that went through numerous pieces of legislation that members of the Black Caucus have put forward. But each of the members of the executive committee had a specific area of public policy that we spoke to him about. Mine was criminal justice reform. We talked about transportation. We talked about uh, income security, jobs, et cetera. Uh, So uh, the last time you were here, I remember asking you what you were hearing from your constituents uh, during your town halls. And you said that you had become 
sort of the like your sessions had become like counseling political sessions. therapist yes I political said, therapy. was my new occupation right. <laughs> has that changed well yes it has changed it's changed in a very positive way so you know what I did after after we talked because people were so anxious in the district and wanted something physical to do in response to his election so what we did is is that from March 2017 until November 2018 we went out almost every weekend canvassing in Republican districts. So we took the Democrats from L.A., we went to nearby cities because there were seven seats, Republican seats, that we wanted to flip. And we were hoping that we would flip two or three. We flipped all seven. Oh, you flipped all seven? (laughs) All seven. Yes, we did. And so the Republican caucus in California was split in half. California now has 46 Democrats, seven Republicans who are in Congress representing the state of California. That is bananas. <laughs> exactly. For as long as I can remember, California had a sizable Republican delegation, and now it's dwindled to seven. Seven. That's right. And so what was so exciting, though, was that people kept up the enthusiasm. They literally went out every weekend and people would come back and they would say, you know what, I feel better because at least I was able to do something. And then, of course, after the election, not only did they do something, but we won and we won everything. Now people are real jazzed and they want to keep going. I wasn't planning for that. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, we won. We can stop now. No, we need to keep going. Well, I was going to save the 2020 discussion for a little bit later, but let's talk about it now. Are people... Because of the success in in November 2018, are they now fully focused on 2020 and now talking about particular people who are running for president? No. As a matter of fact, that was something that we actually strongly discouraged, and I'll tell you why. Because we flipped seven seats, but in my opinion, we're just renting these seats. Hmm. You have to win these seats three, four, or five times before you can claim you actually won them. So what we were very worried about was that people would say, okay, we won. Now let's switch to the next thing because that's what Democrats do. Right. No, we have to make sure that these seven people that won their seats win them again. We will get to the presidential, of course, but it is California. So so we know that the Democrat is going to win. And everybody's excited about the presidential, but we need people to stay focus on making sure that these seven Democrats actually get elected again. All right. So I will come back to 2020 later, but let's let's keep on on President Trump. So now here we are two years later. He's still the president. You are now the chair of the CBC. And and what we're all talking about right now is the national emergency. (laughs) That he's going to going to declare by the time this this episode comes out, we'll have declared. Can you talk about what the conversations have been like uh, in the House on Capitol Hill about this very real possibility? Well, frankly, I thought he should have declared a national emergency months ago because you know that with Trump, it's all about theater. So go ahead and have the theater. I mean, the vote that we're going to take tonight is a smaller deal than the vote he agreed to in December. 
In December, it was $1.6 billion for border security. This deal is $1.37 billion. So he's actually getting less. And I completely expected him to declare a national emergency because, again, it's theater. You know there's no emergency. You don't schedule a national emergency. You have a tornado and you declare an emergency, right? right. So it's completely fake. And you know once he does it, He's got, it's going to be challenged in court, and it's going to be stopped. And then his next move will be, this is why you need to elect Republicans, because these bad judges are the ones that threw out my national emergency. I mean, you know, you can tell what he's going to do. So we, he wasted 35 days of a shutdown, incredible pain that was caused. I mean, just remember a few weeks ago, federal workers were going to food pantries, how despicable is that? And it was for no reason. He agreed to the deal in December, and then two radio talk show hosts critiqued him, and then he went back on the deal. So all of us are holding our breath a little bit because one never knows what he's going to do until he actually has the pen in his hand. But the latest thing he tweeted was that he's going to sign it, declare a national emergency, and move money into his fake border wall. Uh, so, well, how is he going to be able to move money to to his border wall um, if it's going to be tied up in the courts. But he can't. But again, if you view it from the theatrical point of view, it will just be the theater. He will say he's going to move money, and then it'll be challenged in the courts, and he'll be stopped. That's why I said then he'll go on the warpath talking about talking I need about better the, judges. Right, talking about the judges. So that made me think how... I mean, it's an incredible calculation, and it's probably a calculation that could work in his favor. How do you push back against that? Because he's got a, he's got a hardcore base of 35 to 40 percent. They have not gone anywhere despite all of the horrific things that he's done. But if he starts making the argument that the judges are the ones who are stymieing his agenda in the run-up to 2020... Who's to say that won't work? Well, I mean, I think a few things. One, we saw his base begin to erode over the shutdown. And so I know he still has his hardcore folks, but it doesn't matter what he was going to do. That hardcore, at least right now, is stayed steady. So, you know, think about it this way. Republicans, and this is interesting because they used to always be against eminent domain. Yeah. If we gave him $50 billion, it's not like there's just free land sitting there. Those are Native American reservations. They're private uh, ranches. That's private property. Even if he had all of the money, he would be tied up in courts trying to take the land. So what is he going to do? He's just going to lie. His rally at El, pa at El Paso, what did the banner say? Finish the wall. Now he's trying to tell people that he's building the wall, even right. though he's not. And so as long as Fox TV continues to... Um, go along with the lie and lie right along with him, you have a, po a percentage of the population that completely remains fooled. But the Gallup poll, the most recent Gallup poll that's come out, has put the president's approval rating up. Up to what? Seven points. From what to what? But up to 40 percent. <laughs> but, but he's Up to 40 percent. I know, I know. We're talking, <laughs> we're grading on a curve here. Um, yes. <laughs> um, but... For a president whose popularity went down because of the shutdown, right, has now rebounded after the shutdown. How do you explain? How do you explain that? Even though it's up to forty <laughs> percent, <laughs> you know, who knows? But 
we all know that it's about 10 years until 2020 in in politics. And what I believe is going to happen is more and more information is going to come out about his criminal behavior. And so we do have the Mueller report. But aside from the Mueller report, and, and I don't think he quite gets this, Let's wait until the end of March and April, because it's taken us a while to get organized. You know, Democrats taking over the House. Mm -hmm. That's a huge transfer of power. That takes time in and of itself. But we had to do that transfer in the midst of a shutdown. So it's taken a while for the Democrats to have these gavels. Jerry Nadler, Adam Schiff, Benny Thompson, Maxine Waters, the committees that will actually do the oversight that has not taken place over the last couple of years. So what he has been stressed out about, the Mueller investigation that he hates, one of the reasons he hates it is because he doesn't really know what's going on. Well, you're going to know what's going on with us because we're going to do it on C-SPAN. It's all going to be done in public. And so those same people that testified behind closed doors in the Mueller investigation, we're going to subpoena them, bring them before the Congress. And so as we really dive into his, what I believe is criminal behavior over many, many years, let's see where his poll numbers go. So I don't look at his poll numbers going up right now. I don't look at the fact that he's going to lie and say he built the wall. Now his new slogan is finish the wall. We have a long way to go. And the truth hasn't even come out. I mean, it little bits of it leaks out, you know, every few days. But I think as we go on and learn more and more about what he's been doing, not just in the last two years, the conflict of interest, the profiting off of the presidency, the lies, the conspiracy to become president, and then his years of behavior uh, before then, we'll see what his base does. So as chair, chair, do you, okay, do you go by chair, chairman, or chairwoman? Oh! of the above. Okay. <laughs> as long Whichever as ch- one. As long as chair is in it. Well, there you go. You, you are fine. <laughs> so um, you have put out a 10-point must-do policies. And they are things that wouldn't surprise anyone. One of them you talked about, criminal justice reform, this restoring the Voting Rights Act, um, end the war on drugs, empower workers, boost educational opportunity, uh, common sense gun violence prevention, economic opportunity affordable housing, eliminate discriminatory lending. These are these are all things that uh, Democrats in general and particularly African-Americans, uh, African-Americans in particular are for. Now that you're in the majority, right. you can make some you can make some headway on these things. But can you bring any of these planes in for a landing? I think without so. the Oh, okay. Because I'm going to say without the president of the United States well, being on board or even caring about any of these. Well, I, you know, I mean, we'll see. One thing about him is that he's so erratic, we never know from one day to the next. I mean, he did sign the First Step Act, the criminal justice reform bill that was done, right? right? And so we know Were that there's surprised? an opening. No, I wasn't surprised at all. That he did that? No, you weren't? I wasn't. No, because his administration was involved in it from the beginning. You know, Jared. Um, was one of the ones from the administration that led on that. And so it was a collaborative effort between the House, the Senate, and the administration. Mm-hmm. And I think that at the end of the day, as he's always said, he likes to win. And so if we put winning proposals in front of him, why wouldn't he sign them? You know, he wants to be able to say he did something. And some people might look at us and say, why would you work with him at all? You know, why don't you just oppose everything? 
Well, at the end of the day, each of us come here because we really want to do something for our communities. And to me, that is what's most important. If there's an opportunity to get something done, I mean, we did first step. Now I'm ready for second step and third step in terms of criminal justice reform. This is a big, broad policy agenda. But if you think about we have 55 members, five members are full committee chairs, a number of these areas of policy fall into specific committees. Mm. Some of them we're already moving on. For example, the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Marsha Fudge is chairing a committee, a subcommittee in the House administration, and we've already started hearings on the Voting Rights Act. They had one in Texas. There's another one uh, this this Tuesday, February 19th, in Atlanta. It's building the record to show that voter suppression took place so that we can put through a comprehensive Voting Rights Act. Um, the gun issue, we passed a bill last night in my committee on judiciary around common sense gun prevention, gun violence prevention, background checks. So some of these things we are already moving on. In the Financial Services uh, Committee, um, Maxine Waters covers affordable housing and discriminatory lending. She's moving forward on both of those. So it might look like a big, huge agenda, but with 55 people and the amount of power that we have on a committee and subcommittee level, it's all very doable. So it, as you were talking about all those things, some of these some of these um, issues fall into the bucket that my colleagues in the in the press would call, you know, this is a, a progressive agenda. Yes. Um, has the party. And then what follows is, is the party going too far to the left uh, that will play into the president's hands and deliver him the the White House again. And it's got me wondering, is it is it that the Democratic Party is drifting, quote unquote, too far to the left? Or is the Democratic Party catching up with or giving voice to where the country actually is? I think it's the, the latter. I think it's exactly what you described. If you look at the diversity in the Democratic Party now, if you look at the new voters that delivered us the, the majority, that won over 300 seats in state houses, flipped seven governorships, you are looking at new people coming into the fold. You're looking at a much more diverse electorate. And I think that the Democratic Party is including those people very appropriately. I don't feel that it is the negative division that we saw within the Republican Party. And I frankly think that the Republican Party is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and representing less and less of the United States. And in my opinion, I think an extremist element has essentially taken over the Republican Party, which is why so many people are leaving. I mean, long-term Republicans, George Will, you know, people who have been, you Our know... Our colleague here at the Post, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Who, who have walked away from the... Well, what people tell me is the Republican Party left them, and then they feel that they are just out there. At some point in time, either the Republican Party is going to be so narrow that it kind of goes away and a new party is created, or people go back into the Republican Party and take it over. You know, it's kind of what happened in California. You know, after the, the years of anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric and policy and ballot initiatives, you know, the Republican Party in California is, is whittled down to third party status. Hmm. I mean, the largest party is the Democrats. The second largest party are the declined states. <laughs> the third party is the Republican Party, which is why you have Democrats, you know, they, there's Democrats supermajority in both houses of the state legislature. Every constitutional officer is a, uh, a Democrat. 
And it's because they went so far to the right that, you know, the population left them. And and it's not that California is so locked down because California has open primaries. I mean, you right. It's not that a Republican couldn't run and couldn't get on the ballot and couldn't win. It's just I mean. Nobody they, wants to vote for them. <laughs> That's just to put a finer, fine point on it. Yes. Um, you, you, when you were in the, the California Assembly and you were the Assembly Speaker, um, that was when you and now House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy um, were colleagues, right? Well, no. I was not Speaker uh, when he was there. Okay. I was Majority Whip. And he was Republican leader. And then he left and went on to Congress. So he, we worked together in my first term. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot here a little sure. bit because you knew him before. And I know him now. And you know him now. Yeah. Are you – has he changed? No, I don't think Kevin has changed. Kevin is still a friend of mine, a colleague. We've worked together on different pieces of legislation. Kevin's a political animal. Uh, who is always involved in the races, and uh, and I think that he stayed the same. He's very well liked within his caucus. He knows his caucus very well. He's a good organizer. Now, you know, I mean, he's he's not king, and uh, and he winds up with Trump as president. So you know, and he's an ally of Trump, and so I think that that hurt obviously hurt them in the election, which is why they lost the house. Do you? But. It- so now he's an ally of Trump. Yes. Does that surprise you? Or is he, since he's a political animal, he is just doing his duty because the president is a member of his party? Well, here's what I know Kevin is not. Uh, Kevin is not a right wing ideologue. Um, now, there are definitely people in his party, especially the ones in the Freedom Caucus that are. That is not who Kevin is. I think Kevin is leading his party. Trump is the head of his party. What is he going to do? I mean, for those people that thought Paul Ryan should have done something different, I think they don't understand the speakership. How is he supposed? How is he going to be a? He's going to be a complete renegade of the person who's in charge of his party. It was the <laughs> card. It was, it was the card he was dealt, which is why. Where is he now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he chose to leave. All right. So. So um, you brought up Speaker Paul Ryan. Let's talk about the current speaker. Yes. Speaker, speaker Nancy Pelosi. Woo. I have just had so much fun watching her. <laughs> I have just had so much fun. I was somebody asked me what was I what did I think she was thinking as she was sitting behind him and I, I joked and I said she probably wanted to take the gavel and pop him on top of his head <laughs> for being so silly. But I loved her clap. Uh-huh. I mean, that was... <laughs> that was a mom clap. <laughs> totally, totally a mom clap. And I forgot to... Were you... You were in the chamber or were you not in the chamber? Uh, this year, I was in the chamber. This year, you were in the... <laughs> Last year, I was not. <laughs> okay, so this year, you're, you were in the chamber, but now you're in the chamber as a member of the, major, of, of the majority. Yeah. What was the... What was the, the mood? I mean, on television, it, it looked like, um, at least on the Democratic side... Um, very jovial probably isn't the right word, but there was a there was a sense of of joy. No, there were mo- no no no. There were moments. 
there were moments. I, I, we were all sitting around being tortured by that rambling speech that went on forever. I mean, he talked for 90 minutes. And, you know, and he, did, and he sprinkled it with, like, roses. You know what I mean? And then, mm-hmm. But most of it was the vitriol that we're used to. The moments that were joyful, <laughs> that were funny to us, like when he turned and looked at our side and talked about all of the women. And it's like, but we're all Democrats. Right. <laughs> and you did help us. Right. <laughs> you helped elect all of these women who are opposed to you. If you turned and looked the other way, there's only a handful of women and you would have had to look really hard to find them. So we thought it was hilarious that he, you know, looked toward us and made that comment. And uh, I don't think he realized what he had said. Yeah, was... And I think he thought we were, like, applauding him. We were not. We were applauding ourselves for winning those seats. Right. I love I loved that one moment. There was one um, member of Congress when he said that, and she she does this. She takes her thumbs and she points to herself like, yeah, <laughs> right. we, thank you very much. And everyone jumps up and applauds. And But there just seemed to be that moment of, That's of right. pride and, you know, Chest thumping, yeah, hell yeah, that's right. <laughs> we we're here. Yes, it was laughing at his ignorance, actually. And so, twenty twenty, mm-hmm. um, we now have ten people, ten Democrats who have declared, and probably ten more coming, and ten, and ten, <laughs> yes, ten more coming. Who? Who are you waiting to see? I'm not asking you to who you're going to endorse because you're not going to give me an answer <laughs> because you're chair of the CBC and there's a few members running. Um, but who are you waiting to see whether they get in or whether they, they decide to stay out? Oh, um, well, I mean, I think the person that people are probably waiting to see what he's going to do is Biden. Biden, Bernie, Beto. That, those would be the people that I'm waiting to see what they're going to do now. Of course, we do want it to be a CBC member since we do have the precedent of having a CBC member. I don't think people thought about that before. Mm-hmm. But President Obama was a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. And seeing one of our own take the oath of office, we'd like to see that again. Well, what do you say uh, to people? Because there is this strain of argument. And, you know, our paper and The New York Times have run stories about people who think, you know, a woman can't win. Well, you know, I don't think that the United States is so far behind the rest of the world. I mean, technically we are right now, but (laughs) I do believe that we can catch up. I mean, if you think about it, it's pretty scandalous. I mean, you can look at, I don't know if this is the case, although I wouldn't be surprised, that probably every continent in the world, maybe. Well, I don't know that there's been. Has there been a woman prime minister of Canada? But there's been, but there has been women presidents in South America. Um, Africa has had three women Mm -hmm. presidents. So we are behind. Pakistan. (laughs) Right, exactly. India. India. (laughs) And so, I mean, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to think that we could not elect a woman. Um, But I, and I think that this time is, is the best. I mean, look at how many women are already in the race now. Win, win, win. Have we ever seen that? So I think it's very exciting. I'm one that is not, you know, some people are freaked out. There's so many Democrats. How are we ever going to figure out who it's going to be? We have plenty of time. I mean, it's 10 years until the election. In political life, relatively speaking, a year is forever. And in Trump's America, a day is is forever. Absolutely. We measure time by tweets. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you had a chance to meet 
the per- the member of Congress everyone calls AOC. Absolutely. You have. I have. What are your impressions of her? I think, well, you know what? I've just been very impressed with her. I think she's, you know, a very young woman. She reminds me of, you know, the activist I was at her age. And I think it's been exciting. And I have seen her grow. And, um, and I think she has a lot more growing to do. I mean, to go from who she was before to be a part of a legislative body. And I, I know very well what it feels like to, to change from being an activist on the outside, where I spent most of my life, to now being on the inside. It's a big adjustment to make. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching her make that adjustment. And politically speaking, do you think it was a, a mistake for her before she's even in the door to say that she's going to work on primary challenges yes. of, of Democrats. Yes. And how does how does one let's leave her name out of it, but how does one who does that repair the damage that that, that does? I think well, I mean, I think there's damage if you follow through on it. Mm-hmm. Now, before she came in, you know, she did challenge a couple of, of incumbents uh, at you know, after she won her primary mm-hmm. before she was sworn in. So it's one thing to say that it's another thing to actually deliver on it. And I don't know this to be a fact, but I have a feeling that she will understand in time that the very people that you're talking about primarying, you actually need them to vote for your legislation. <laughs> right. New, green <laughs> it's, New Deal. It's, it's a <laughs> legislative plan. body. Mm-hmm. And I certainly appreciate her uh, her activism. I appreciate her, you know, progressive politics and also her use of of social media. Um, It's certainly something that uh, is is phenomenal. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's your colleagues that vote for your legislation, not your Twitter followers. Mm -hmm. You know, you raise you you raise a good point. And that is as someone who was an activist on the outside and who transitioned from outsider to insider, what would be. Um, for the AOCs out there, either newbies in Congress or folks who would want to follow in their footsteps and come into the next session as new members of Congress. The three pieces of advice, if you can think of any, to make the transition from outside to inside. Well, one thing, first of all, just a little bit of background. One of the big differences between me and AOC is I was an activist on the outside for decades and ran for office much later in life. And that's, that's an entirely different experience. But what I would tell people is learn about the office that you're running for before you run, meaning visit, find out about the legislative body, see if this is what you really want to do, maybe meet and talk to somebody that's in office, because you might get in here and say, oh, my God, this body moves way too slow. I'm much more comfortable being on the outside. So that it needs to be a conscious decision that you clearly know what you're getting into But one of the most important pieces of advice is have an agenda when you get here, Mm -hmm. because otherwise you can get you can get sucked up into the whirlwind of the day to day work of the job and actually never accomplish anything. So be very clear about what you want to accomplish. And then also the other thing that I would strongly suggest is come in and look for mentors. You know, mentors to me is not an age related thing. Uh, I knew what areas of policy I wanted to work on, child welfare, Africa, criminal justice reform. And so before I got here, I looked to find out which members of Congress were already working on those issues. 
and had worked on those issues. And I went and recruited them to be my mentors and show me the way. In a legislative body, especially Congress, where people have been there for years, no one wants to feel like you walk in the door and you know everything. I mean, if, if you do come in like that, people will just sit there and watch you fall. Right, gleefully. They, they, won't, they won't help you, <laughs> you know. But if you come in with humility, with humility and with respect, then you can go a long way. And so even though, you know, she started off talking about primarying people, I wouldn't be surprised at all to see her not do that. Mm-hmm. So as CBC chair, what, what did you do to prepare for, for the role? I know you were on the executive committee oh, before, you know. but to, to move from executive committee into, into the chair, mm-hmm. what did you have to learn? Mm-hmm. Now you've been an insider for right. a long time, first in the California uh, legislature and now in the House, but were there things that you had to learn? Absolutely. What I did, because um, I started running for chair last year, I spent last year studying the history of the Black Caucus. I, I found out there was a ton of books written, academic papers written. I read everything I could put my hands on. I went back and I found some people. Now, Black Caucus is old, so some people are not with us anymore. Um, I've talked to all of the previous chairs, made sure they would all serve as mentors for me now. Uh, so I spent a long time preparing for this, and, um, and it's why I feel comfortable in it you know, so far. Now, I have no doubt that I'm going to have lots of challenges, like whenever there's some major incident that happens like Virginia or, um, you know, if a member gets in trouble, um, you know, we have some members that are facing health issues. So, you know, it's 55 people. And uh, and my focus is and my job is to make sure that they succeed. Why is the CBC important? Well, I think there are a lot of people out there who are like, well, why is there a congressional black caucus? Like, why is that even? Why is that even needed? And I'm sure in the age of Trump, there are a lot of people who are wondering, you know, what's up with this "quote unquote" special interest thing. Well, you know, um, at different periods of time, uh, since the CBC has been around, it has played different roles. It's always been needed, and obviously, you point out the Trump administration, and it's even more needed now because, truthfully, we are watching an administration attempt to systematically reverse or destroy everything we fought for for the last 60, 70 years. All the civil rights legislation and policy, people don't necessarily think about it, but every um, agency of government has civil rights in it, whether you're talking about the Department of Justice, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, all of those agencies address disparities in our country, institutional racism, uh, et cetera. He's attempting to dismantle it. So on the one hand, one role of the Black Caucus is defensive, is trying to protect what is being, you know, attempted to be destroyed right now. The other side is offensive in terms of where does the African-American population need to go. And it would be nice, just like Jonathan, it would be great if we didn't have Black History Month. I mean, what if what if the achievements, the trials and tribulations of African-Americans were included in U.S. history? There wouldn't be a need for it. So if we overcome institutional racism and bias, then maybe there isn't a need. But until then, and I think that what we have found from the Trump administration, and I, and I don't think any of us really expected it, some battles you don't think that you have to keep fighting. I mean, the right to vote. It is basic. I go with my colleagues around the world and I sit and I listen to them preach and lecture 
elected officials from other countries about democracy and the right to vote. And I'm like, no, 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 wait a minute now. (laughs) You guys are leading the effort to stop people from voting in the United States. So don't get up on your high horse. But if you think about some of the most basic fundamental rights that we're still fighting for today. Congresswoman Karen Bass of California, also the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. Thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Post Reports. Every afternoon, host Martine Powers brings you the unparalleled reporting and analysis you expect from the Post newsroom in our newest daily podcast. Or try Retropod a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, Rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcast. The Washington 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 Post. Post.